Amongst liberals and libertarians, sociology is often described as an academic discipline taken over by the left. An overwhelming majority of sociologists identify as left-leaning, besides a few notables such as Fabio Rojas, who stand out as principal libertarians. But this operates as an exception, not the rule. Liberals and libertarians are right that today, the majority of sociologists hold left-wing beliefs, often in direct opposition to liberal principles. But that does not mean that sociology is an inherently left-leaning discipline. In fact, if we look back to the roots of sociology, we find that liberal thinkers played a vital role in establishing the discipline of sociology as a subject dedicated to studying the development, structure, and functioning of human society. This leads me to my topic today, William Graham Sumner. Besides intellectual historians, William Graham Sumner remains a stranger to the vast majority of the public. But in his day, Sumner was a prominent social thinker, crucial to establishing the first sociology course taught in America. Sumner produced a gargantuan amount of work, about 300 articles, essays, and books on political science and sociology. He was born in Patterson, New Jersey on October 30th, 1840. He was the son of Thomas Sumner and Sarah Graham, both of English origin, who moved to the United States separately and then married. Tragically, Sumner's mother died when he was the tender age of eight. So his father acted as an early influence on Sumner's political beliefs. Although not formally educated, Sumner's father was kept up to date in political news and was a supporter of free trade. Sumner's father worked as a prospector, traveling out west to Ohio regularly, but eventually he settled in Hartford, Connecticut. Unlike many renowned academics, Sumner came from a very working class family. Sumner's parents hailed from artisan families in Lancashire, one of the earliest centres of industrialism, but also an epicentre of urban poverty. Sumner's father had emigrated to the United States to evade the looming threat of the poorhouse. Though poor, Sumner's parents had an ethos of self-reliance they passed down to their children. Sumner was educated at the local Hartford Public Schools, and after graduating, he worked as a clerk in a store before attending Yale. He graduated in 1863 with an impressive record as an orator and a scholar. He avoided being drafted into the Union Army during the American Civil War, using money given to him by a friend to pay for a substitute to serve in his place. Free from his obligations to the military, Sumner traveled to Europe to educate himself further. He spent a year at the University of Geneva studying Latin and Hebrew, and the next two years at the University of Göttingen, studying ancient languages, history, and theology. By the end of his formal education, Sumner could impressively speak Hebrew, Greek, Latin, French, and German. But this fascination with languages never left Sumner. Later in life, he would teach himself Dutch, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, Russian, Polish, Danish, and Swedish. In 1866, Sumner finished his education at Oxford University, studying theology. And while attending Oxford, he met the historian Henry Thomas Buckle, who introduced Sumner to the writings of the libertarian thinker Herbert Spencer. This helped spur Sumner's intellectual oeuvre of sociology and political science later in life. Finishing up his studies, Sumner returned to America and began work as a lecturer teaching Greek at Yale. At this time, Sumner's passion was for religion, and he extensively studied theology and biblical science throughout his education. In 1867, he was ordained a deacon of the Episcopal Church in New Haven. He quit his job at Yale to help out as an assistant rector of Cavalry Episcopal Church in Manhattan then. By the summer of 1869, Sumner was ordained as a full priest, and for the next two years, Sumner was a rector at the Church of the Redeemer in Morristown, New Jersey. In 1871, he married his love, Janine Whitmore Elliott. 
The couple had three boys, one of whom who tragically died in infancy. Of the other two, one went on to be an officer of the Pennsylvania Railroad, and the other became a lawyer in New York. Sumner was a passionate minister, preaching sermons about the virtue of hard work, frugality, and self-denial. But in 1872, Sumner left the ministry, turned to Yale as a professor of political and social science. Sumner revealed little about why he had become a minister, and even less about why he left the position. Scholars have suggested that Sumner might have left due to his views in the church and the clergy, or through a loss of belief. But we can't know for sure whether Sumner's reasons were personal or political. Returning to Yale in 1872, Sumner became part of the Young Yale Movement, a group that aimed to reform education from classroom recitation to more modern methods of learning, focusing around science. Despite his grounding in the divinities and classics, Sumner actually spent his time at Yale pushing institution in a more modern direction, focusing on value-free science. Sumner spent the rest of his career at Yale. It seems that he much preferred the classroom to the pulpit. Sumner excelled at Yale, and was considered to be institution's most dynamic and well-learned scholar. He held a reputation as someone who had a genuine love and support for aspiring students, who he encouraged to think independently. Sumner also carved out a reputation as a champion of academic freedom. When Sumner assigned Herbert Spencer's study of sociology as reading for students, Yale's president requested Sumner remove Spencer from the assigned readings, being that he was an atheist. Sumner simply refused and stood his ground with Yale's president, eventually relenting to Sumner. But Sumner's actions were not grounded in some academic pettiness, but in a genuine appreciation for Herbert Spencer's work. The term sociology was coined by Auguste Comte as a new label for the science of society meant to supersede the field of political economy and its theories of commercially driven progress. Though Spencer, like Sumner, is rarely read today, in his day he was a rock star intellectual of the 19th century, possibly even the first philosopher to sell a million copies of his own work while still alive. While Spencer deserves an episode all of his own, Sumner gleaned critical insights from his work, his theory of evolutionary change and spontaneous order, and most of all, his appreciation for the budding discipline of sociology. Herbert Spencer believed that state intervention nearly always fails because the mere human mind of a legislator cannot possibly comprehend the widespread effects of legislation on a populace of millions of individuals with varying values, goals, and cultures. Spencer's philosophy of evolutionary change theorized of a day when states in their current aggressive and brutish form are no longer necessary. Sumner was enraptured by Spencer's writings and predicted that sociology would be akin to the advent of a scientific method in natural sciences. For Spencer, sociology had the potential to dispel arbitrary dogmatism gone unchecked and provide a value-free guide on how to organize society. For Spencer, sociology was not about fanciful thinking or building castles in the sky. It existed to analyze realities, forces, laws, consequences, facts, conditions, and relations. It has nothing at all to do with motives, purposes, hopes, intentions, or ideals. Sumner laid out his hopes for sociology in his essay, The Science of Sociology, in 1882. Sociology for Sumner was not about abstract theorizing or philosophizing, an area where he took a hard turn from Spencer's influence. It is about establishing facts about human society and how it functions. In Sumner's words, it must without a doubt come into collision with all other theories of right living which are founded on authority, tradition, arbitrary invention, and poetic imagination. However, accessing the facts of how society functions does not give the sociologists license to remake society in their intellectual image. Instead, it creates a duty of the sociologist to be cautious. Social phenomena are infinitely complex and are nearly never clear or straightforward to interpret. 
Sumner writes of the drastic implications of societal change, stating, To err in prescribing for a man is at worst to kill him. To err in prescribing for a society is to send into operation injurious forces which extend to ramify and multiply their effects in ever new combinations throughout an indefinite future. It may pay to experiment with an individual because he cannot wait for medical science to be perfected. It cannot pay to experiment with a society because society does not die and can't afford to wait. Unmoved by people such as Spencer's philosophizing, Sumner took an almost Burkean approach, seeing society as an infinitely complex web of individual relationships dictated by ever-evolving social norms, which Sumner dubbed mores, a now commonplace sociological term. Sumner describes his life as simple and monotonous, and this is true enough. Sumner stayed in the same place at the same job for the majority of his life, but his intellectual output was far more complex and varied than his personal life. Sumner published on sociology, political economy, and a slew of articles published in newspapers and periodicals arguing for limited government and a laissez-faire approach to the economy. It would take literally an entire series to cover all of Sumner's dedicated output. So for time's sake, I would like to focus on a few core areas. The first being Sumner's ardent anti-imperialism. The second being his idea of the forgotten man. Third, his theory of why government always serves the interests of a small protected class. And lastly, my personal favorite idea of Sumner's, the transition from a society of status to a society of contract. Sumner is considered one of the great critics of the Spanish-American War, a conflict between the United States and the Spanish Empire. Caused by the explosion of the USS Maine in Havana, America intervened in the Cuban War of Independence. America eventually emerged victorious from the conflict and added to her territories Guam, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines. Though the war proved a useful tool for politicians to whip up enthusiasm at home, Sumner belonged to a very unique alliance founded in 1898 to oppose the war. The Anti-Imperialist League to which Spencer belonged included the former president Grover Cleveland, the pragmatist philosopher John Dewey, the industrialist and philanthropist Andrew Carnegie, and two woefully underrated classical liberals, Edward Atkinson and Morfield Story, who I really hope to cover in the future. In 1898, Sumner delivered a speech titled The Conquest of the United States by Spain, the Phi Beta Kappa Society of Yale. Sumner opens his speech by stating that Spain represents the zenith of imperialistic states, relying upon aggressive warfare and economic exploitation to maintain power. The United States, on the other hand, has historical origins, traditions, and principles that culminated in a violent revolution against the system of colonial government practiced by the English and the Spanish. Any naive theory of American exceptionalism drained from Sumner when he saw the popular pride in the war and saw it as a sign that America was not actually exceptional, but merely one example of human nature's woeful tendency towards domination. Sumner wrote, We have beaten Spain in military conflict. We are submitting to be conquered by her on the field of ideas and policies. Expansionism and imperialism are nothing but the old philosophies of national prosperity which have brought Spain to where she now is. Sumner's idea was, by adopting the same logic as former imperialistic powers, the United States was not only condemning people to die in a pointless war, but to imperil self-government domestically. For Sumner, self-government is not flags and parades fueling national sentiment, but eternal vigilance backed up by habitual civic virtue. Sumner notes that imperialistic states such as France and Spain brought about their own ruin through massive public debts brought on by war and policing exploitative colonial states. This led to a suppression of civil and economic freedom in the mother country. As Sumner glibly notes, the most important thing that we will inherit from the Spaniards will be the task of suppressing rebellions. But besides the cost of lives and loved ones, a war causes public debts, the suppression of civil liberties such as free speech at home, 
and a violation of the fundamental principle the United States was founded upon, that all men are born equal, a point Sumner stresses persistently throughout all of his writings. But the most far-reaching and negative result of the war is the greatest enemy of democracy. In Sumner's eyes, the formation of lobbying groups, what he calls jobbery or plutocracy, government by the wealthy. We will discuss this aspect of Sumner in a little bit later. But the driving ideological force of imperialism is cognitive dissonance, a fancy way of burying your head in the sand and ignoring the obvious contradictions unfolding in front of you. Sumner believed this led to imperialistic states resorting to what he would later call ethnocentrism. The idea that one's own group is at the center of all things and every other group is scaled and referenced based upon your group standards. And this would result in all kinds of ridiculous mental gymnastics, with American politicians advocating that it's actually liberty to be ruled by Americans. Sumner predicted the First World War and observed that everywhere you go on the continent of Europe at this hour, you see the conflict between militarism and industrialism. The logical consequence of perpetual war through expansion and colonialism is an arms race with every competing nation alongside new taxes, debts, and the suppression of freedom at home. Isolationism, a crude label given to what Sumner saw as a much more prudent policy, was in line with America's traditions and principles. As an ardent classical liberal, Sumner saw war as a regressive and miserable force in the world, a prophetic warning that was not avoided, despite Sumner's best efforts. Next up is Sumner's idea of the forgotten man. For Sumner, history is a long story about how some humans have struggled for power, and sounding very much like Frederick Bastiat, discussing legal plunder, Sumner writes, Men have struggled for power over their fellow men in order that they might win the joys of the earth at the expense of others, and might shift the burdens of life from their shoulders upon those of others. For Sumner, there's two basic methods of acquiring wealth in the world. The first is the economic means. This consists of trading, working, investing, saving, and all varieties of generative, productive activities. The second is the political means, by using the state to extract resources of productive members. This is what we call today lobbying, but what Sumner would call jobbery. Sumner believed the vast majority of political theory excessively focuses on poor and needy and the uber-wealthy, discussing how to best redistribute from one group to another. But Sumner interjects that something, or rather someone, is missing, what Sumner calls the forgotten man. Sumner describes the forgotten man as the simple, honest laborer, ready to earn his living by productive work, we pass him by because he is independent, self-supporting, and asks no favors. He does not appeal to the emotions or excite the sentiments. He only wants to make a contract and fulfill it, respect to both sides and favor on neither side. This might sound quite familiar, as it's probably a large portion of the people in your life, regular, normal people. If the forgotten man does not represent the majority of society, they certainly at least represent a sizable section of any given polity. And yet, get state intervention constantly frustrates the efforts of the forgotten man, and most government policies are paid for by the forgotten man. But how could this happen in a place like the United States, which is equipped with democracy? For Sumner, the answer lies in jobbery, or more succinctly, the phenomenon of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. Jobbery is an effort through politics to win wealth by using various legislative and regulative schemes to enrich pre-existing industries or interests at the expense of others. Sumner notes that jobbery is rampant not because it is direly needed, but because it effectively serves private interest groups. Sumner's prime example of jobbery is the protective tariff. What Sumner was describing is what we would now call crony capitalism, socialized cost and privatized benefits. The person who suffers and pays for all these incessant schemes is the forgotten man. 
Jobbery produces nothing, so the resources must come from those who produce them, economic means. Sumner summarizes the lot of the forgotten man, writing, He works, he votes, generally he prays, but he always pays. Yes, above all, he pays. He is not one in office. His name never gets into a newspaper except when he marries or dies. Sumner was concerned about the rising popularity of socialism, but he saw the real danger was plutocracy and jobbery, establishing muddied interests as a manipulator of the state's public wealth. Sumner feared that doctrines of socialism and redistribution provided an excellent intellectual camouflage for elites who could act under the name of the people while enriching themselves. Sumner anticipates a key aspect of the future idea of public choice theory in economics, that relatively small groups with narrowly defined explicit interests have an enormous strategic advantage against larger groups with more diffuse interests. This leads to all sorts of destructive economic policies, hampering free enterprise for protective tariffs and regulations to protect economic interests of a small segment of the population. A perfect example of this phenomenon today is the Jones Act, which I encourage you to read more about. Sonar believed the plight of the forgotten man and the success of jobbery was due to political institutions still holding medieval theories of personal dependence and tutelage, mixed in with contradictory modern theories of independence and individual rights. Sumner argues that liberalism was conceived in direct opposition to the medieval European practices of a status-oriented society. What Sumner means by a status-oriented society is one where your worth, rights, and role are all decided by one status. Whether a king or a peasant, the mark of a status society is that the vast majority of people are born into their role in life. Sonar writes that associations, ranks, and guilds were the ties that bound people together in the medieval world. All parts of society were dependent on status. However, liberalism does not share the same concern with status. Instead, liberals focused on contract, Sumner's preferred method of organizing society. In a society of contract, one's position is not based upon birth, but a notion of equality, that all people have an exclusive right to their own abilities to look out for their own welfare. Liberalism for Sumner is a product of a revolt against the medieval status-based order, and putting in its place an imperfectly developed society that was no longer based on status, but on individuals making mutually beneficial agreements with one another. Contract. But Sumner was a really nuanced thinker, and he admits that certain aspects of the medieval system are quite comforting, such as deep ties with dependency between ranks. The contract-oriented society leaves the maximum space open for individuals for self-development, but also leaves them at the mercy of economic factors outside of their control. For Sumner, the perfecting of our politics is not merely a matter of choosing better ideas, but choosing trade-offs. Every system has its advantages and disadvantages, even Sumner's cherished laissez-faire capitalism. Overall, liberty matters greatly for Sumner's brand of liberalism, but it is not the only value worth preserving. Life is an inevitable series of trade-offs for Sumner. He offered no one-size-fits-all solution for liberalism because he did not really believe in that kind of fanciful ideas. Ever the realist, Sumner always stressed that freedom was a great benefit, but it also comes at a great sacrifice. After a nervous breakdown over the impending doom of liberalism, Sumner's health deteriorated quite slowly. After Sumner retired from his long career at Yale in 1909, he suffered a stroke and was admitted to Englewood Hospital in New Jersey. He passed away on April 2nd, 1910. Sumner left this world very pessimistic about the future of liberalism. His fears would sadly be realized in the world wars. Writing of the future, 
He stated quite prophetically, I have lived through the best period of this country's history. The next generations are going to see wars and social calamities. But Sumner fought the good fight for freedom in an exceedingly anti-liberal era of history. Though he lived a quiet life in some senses, his intellectual endeavors were original, impassioned, and unceasing until his death. He spent his life at Yale speaking and writing about politics, introducing thousands to the field of sociology. Despite Sumner's eventual fall into obscurity, Yale still maintains a professorship named in his honor. Unfortunately for Sumner's reputation, in large part declined due to his association with Herbert Spencer, who was dubbed as a social Darwinist by scholars like Richard Hofstadter, who ensured that Sumner's works were disregarded without examination due to the suggestion of eugenic thinking. But thankfully, scholars have been rediscovering Sumner recently, and increasingly his charge of social Darwinism is being critically questioned. A complete history of Sumner's political, economic, and activist work has yet to be written. For now, I hope this brief introduction to Sumner helps put him back on our intellectual map. He was ignored before, and disastrous consequences followed. We should not brush his warnings off so lightly, especially when we inhabit a period of increasing anti-liberalism. <laughs>